Amen. I would like to uh, teach uh, something that I've taught many times before, uh, a message entitled Characteristics of Great Faith. I'm going to use three openings of Scripture, um, Mark chapter 8, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 15, and Romans chapter 4. One of the things that, um, that you need to be aware of is when it comes to the subject of faith, the Bible uses different words to describe it. For example, it uses great versus little, strong versus weak, and so forth. But even where it talks about great faith versus little faith, it's never talking about size. I think we have a, a tendency to think in uh, one-dimensionally, and uh, we, we approach things from a standpoint of, do I have enough faith? Meaning, is my faith big enough to handle the problem at hand, or whatever the case may be? And the Bible doesn't talk about faith in those terms. Uh, little faith means weak faith. Great faith means strong faith. And strong faith comes about as a determination of your will. It's not that some people have stronger faith than other people just naturally. You're not born with more faith than somebody else. It's not that at all. The Bible says so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word in Romans ten seventeen. So faith is a determination of the will. The strength of faith is a determination of the will. If you're going to have strong faith, it's going to be because you have determined that you will be strong in faith. And anybody can be. Anybody can be. If that were not the case, then God would be unjust in requiring faith of us to receive. Are you out there? The fact that God requires faith, and faith is the only means to, to please him, because faith is the only means whereby you can receive from him the things Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Since God demands faith of us, then that means faith has to be available to all of us or else he'd be unjust. And if faith is available to all of us, then strength of faith or great faith is available to all of us or else God would be unjust. If strong faith or great faith was available unto us, unto, uh, only unto a select few, then we could challenge God's justice in requiring faith of everybody. It'd be okay for him to require faith of those people that are in that select small group and slice of people that can have it. But the fact that he demands it of everybody means that faith is available to everyone and strength of faith is determined by the individual and not by God. It has to be. So in Matthew chapter 8, we want to look at three examples. Two of these examples are in the Gospels where Jesus identified somebody who has great faith. And the other is in Romans chapter 4 where Paul speaks by the Holy Ghost talking about Abraham's strength of faith. And again, we'd have to remind you that strong faith is the same thing as great faith. Let's start in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. A centurion is a Roman soldier. He's a, a captain of a hundred other soldiers. And saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord... I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he, do, he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed. Now, I know, I'm sure that Jesus marvels at a lot of things about the church, but I'd like for him to marvel about me in this respect. I would guess that most of the things Jesus marvels about at the church are not positive. But this one is, and this is something that we should all aspire to. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. Everybody say great faith. I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. In other words, he's saying the Jews ought to have this kind of faith, and they don't. And here's a Roman soldier that has it. So faith isn't available just to select or chosen few, is it? If faith was available to the chosen ones, then Israel is the chosen one, the chosen race. They would have had it instead of the Roman soldier. He said, Verily I have found, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west outside of Israel and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, meaning the Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, why does he talk about people coming from the outside and having a favored position in heaven 
and people from the inside or what should be on the inside, the natural, literal descendants of Abraham being on the outs because it's about faith. It's not about lineage. It's not about heritage. It's not about who your father was or who your grandfather was or what church you came from. It's about faith. And that's available to everybody. And he said, Jesus said unto the centurion, verse 13, Go your way, and as thou hast believed, as thou hast believed, as you have believed, not as the will of God has determined, but as you have believed, so be it done unto thee, and his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now there, um, as you would well understand and imagine, the characteristics of great faith are going to be, there are going to be common elements that you're going to see in all three of these stories, all three of these accounts that we're going to talk about. There are, um, I don't, I don't think, well, how do I say this? If you've got great faith, if a person develops great faith, he's going to have to have all the characteristics or else his faith isn't going to be great. You can't be great in faith in one aspect and, and uh, weaker in faith in another aspect and be identified as great faith. Now, Jesus doesn't know this guy. We don't have any record that he's ever met him before. We don't have record that he's ever been in Jesus' meetings before or, or what he's heard about him or how he heard about him or anything. We don't know anything about this guy. But the one thing that we do know is that what he identified caused Jesus to recognize that he had great faith. So the characteristics of great faith were evident and will always be evident in those that have it. Can you say amen? Amen. That would have to be true, wouldn't it? Now, what was it? What characteristic was it about this guy that caused Jesus to recognize that he had great faith? Well, let's go back over the story. Jesus hears about the servant that's at home, sick of the palsy, and Jesus volunteers to come and heal him. Now, you would have to understand that that would be the, the dream position that everybody would want to be in. For Jesus to come to them. And he's willing to do so. He says, I will come and heal him. Literally in the Greek, it says, having come, I will heal. And it's a lot more than just Jesus saying, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. It's Jesus saying, having come to the earth, it's the will of God to bring healing. But his position is is a favored one. It's one to be desired. Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal him. And the guy stops him. And says, Lord, you don't have to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. And it's not necessary. So one of the things that you need to be aware of as a characteristic of great faith is that great faith is not looking for the physical action of any human being. It's not dependent on the physical action or the physical presence of any human being. Not even Jesus himself. You would well understand that most people would would uh, respond when Jesus said, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. Most people would jump up and down and say, well, finally, we've got the answer. This is all we needed right here. But instead, he argues with him. He said, Lord, you don't have to come to my house. I'm not worthy that you come to my house. Well, if he's not looking for a physical presence of even Jesus himself, who he uh, clearly has identified as the healer, or else he wouldn't have come to Jesus for healing. If he's not looking for the presence of the healer to make the, the, the to bring about the desired result or make the, the his servant well, what is he looking for? He says, Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Here's the characteristic, the main characteristic I want to point out in this uh, passage, in this instance, and that is great faith has an unwavering relationship with the word of God alone. He doesn't need Jesus to come to his house. He just needs Jesus to speak the word. Now, what does that mean? Well, for him, and he identifies, we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail later on, because I think there are some hidden elements to great faith that uh, that can be seen a little bit uh, better from a distance. And we'll talk about the common elements of all three after we finish getting to the third one. Much more so, it's easy to see much more uh, it's much more easily seen by looking at it from a from a, a, a big picture standpoint than, than individually. So I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but notice that that 
this man identifies something about his understanding that caused Jesus to, to, identify, to identify him as having great faith. Now, what is it about his understanding? His understanding is very simply this. The word equals the man. You'll never hear great faith say, oh, if only we were alive when Jesus was here on the earth. Then we could get our answer. Why? Because Jesus is the word made flesh. The word of God equals Jesus himself. If you've got the word of God on the subject, you don't need Jesus showing up. And that's what this guy said when Jesus was here. I think that's why Jesus marvels. Jesus is basically saying, nobody denies me to come to their house. That's what everybody wants. And here I make myself available to come to your house. And you say it's not necessary. All you need is for me to speak the word. So what does he do? Jesus eventually says, go your way as you have believed, so be it done unto you. Jesus never even says your servant is healed. Jesus never waves his hand in in a dramatic fashion and says, servant, be healed. He never does anything except saying, go your way as you have believed, so be it done unto you. As you have believed, so be it done unto you. Great faith has a, has a relationship with the word and the word of God alone. Now turn with me over to Mar- uh, Matthew chapter 15. Let's look at another example. Matthew chapter 15 tells the story of another woman, another person that's outside of the, the territory of Israel, outside of the lineage of Israel. We'll start in verse 21. It says, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are not within Israel's geographic boundaries. There are times where Jesus passed through those areas, but he did very, very few works in the region of Tyre and Sidon because it was Gentile territory. Two places that the Bible talks about Jesus didn't do anything much to speak of. One was Decapolis. That was the, the region that was known as the ten cities of Rome. Settlements outside of the geographic territory of Israel and Tyre and Sidon, which was Gentile territory. So it says, Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, notice she's not a Jew. A woman of Canaan came out of the same coast of Tyre and Sidon. That's where she lived. And cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now notice what she did. The first words that Jesus ever speaks to the woman, after she makes clear what she wants, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. So she knows something about Jewish prophecies. She knows something about the prophecies of the Messiah. And she's identified that Jesus fits fits that bill, that he's the guy. So she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus does not answer her. And his disciples come to Jesus. They're supposed to be in charge of crowd control, and she's too tough for them. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, get rid of her. She's bugging us. We've tried everything. We can't get rid of her. And Jesus answers. First thing Jesus says is, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying, lady, I'm not sent for you. I'm not sent for you. First thing she does upon hearing that is she bows down and worships him. Now, if you look up this word worship, it means to kneel, to fall prostrate, or to kiss the hand. In other words, she puts herself in a subservient position and says, Lord, I need your help. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Then came she and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meet or appropriate, proper. 
to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, there's a lot of things that we could see about this, but real quickly, let me point out something. Jesus is very simply saying that the healing and deliverance she's looking for for her daughter belongs to Israel. It's part of the covenant of Abraham. He calls it the children's bread. Now, that's good news, but not to her because she doesn't fall into that category. So Jesus answers and said, it is not appropriate or proper to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Dogs is a term referring to any Gentile. It's a term that the Jews use for the Gentile world to cast it to dogs. Now, you know as well as I do, that's a perfect opportunity for her or you or me or any of us to get our feelings hurt. Jesus is in effect saying, I've got the power to help you, but you're not born of the right people. You were born on the other side of the tracks, and so it doesn't belong to you. So you fall into that category that the Jews refer to, and I will too, as dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto you, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. Sounds almost like what he said to the, to the centurion. Be it unto you, even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, what's the outstanding characteristic of this woman's great faith? Again, Jesus identifies something from what she says or something from what she does, or both, that he identifies in terms as great faith. Now, what is the characteristic of great faith that is the most prominent in this story as exhibited by this woman. Great faith won't give up. Great faith will not give up. Here's a a second part of that, and that is part of her not giving up was not just she wouldn't go away, but her perseverance was that she took what Jesus said and turned it to, to apply to herself. Now, I assume the devil works the same way with everybody. I certainly know he works this way with me. The devil's always trying to talk me out of what the Bible says belongs to me. He's always, from the time that I first found out about the promises of God, or or some of them at least, he's always approached me from the standpoint of, well, yeah, that belongs to the Jews. Or, yeah, that belongs to people that haven't done as much wrong things as you. Or, or some reason that he'll come up with and try to torment me about to, to prove or attempt to prove why what the Bible says Jesus did for me really doesn't belong to me. But I want you to notice, and here's the reason why I bring that out. I want you to notice that she refused to have that. She refused to entertain any thought that kept her from having exactly what she desired to have, which was deliverance for her daughter. That's what great faith does. Great faith finds a reason why it belongs to them. To resist the work of the enemy that tries to talk you out of taking it for yourself. Great faith takes the word of God and and look at what she did. She took Jesus' words and applied it to herself. She said, what you said is true. It's not proper. It's not appropriate. It's not right. According to you, to take the children's bread of healing and deliverance and give it to the Gentiles. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. There was something about this woman. There's an unseen quality, and we're going to talk about that as we, as we finish the third one, seeing the third one. Here's another unseen quality that made her refuse to give up. And it's a common quality with the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. The third one's over in Romans chapter 4. The third example is Romans chapter 4. This is Paul writing to the church about Abraham, who is the father of our faith, the faith that we are supposed to imitate. And he goes into some detail about the characteristics of Abraham's strong or great faith. Verse 17 Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. In other words, Paul is saying, this is what is written in the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, about what the promise God made into Abraham. 
God appeared unto Abraham and said, I have made thee the father of nations. Now, folks, the, the tenses are real important. God never appeared to Abraham and said, I will make you the father of nations. But he did appear to him and say, I have made you the father of many nations. Just in the same way that the Bible never says God will do something for you because of the work of Jesus, it says what God has already done for you because Jesus made his sacrifice. I have made thee healed by the stripes of Jesus. By his stripes you were healed, not you're going to be healed. And that's so important because so many people try to put it off to the future. Their idea is if I just believe God, then I will be healed. Well, the reality is you've already been healed. The price has already been paid for healing. By Jesus' stripes, you were healed. And your faith will enable you to take hold of what's already yours. But it's not something reserved for the future. In fact, it's looking to the past. Faith looks to the past at what was already done and what belongs to me now. So the tenses are real important. Uh, E.W. Kenyon used to, said, used to say, he wrote in one of his books, that most people are defeated by the tenses of the word. Now that sounds strange to a lot of people because they don't understand that the work of Jesus has already been accomplished. Jesus is not coming back to the earth to heal you or me or anybody else. And he doesn't have to because healing was already accomplished through the sacrifice that he made on the cross. The Bible says so. So by Jesus' stripes, which happened, which he took upon himself 2,000 years ago, by Jesus' stripes, you were healed. Well, Pastor Mike, if I was healed, then how come I've got sickness in my body? Because you haven't changed the circumstances in your body through faith to take hold of what's already yours. If you can't get people out of looking to the future and something that's going to happen in the future, you can't get them to take hold of what's theirs now. They'll never receive. So God appeared unto Abraham and said, I have made thee. It's already done. I have made thee the father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, before God whom Abraham believed, even the God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. Please notice that last phrase. Here's a characteristic of God. God calls things that be not as though they were. In other words, God calls things that you can't see and confirm physically or materially or naturally as though they're already reality. And that's the the type of characteristic that we're supposed to imitate about God. Now, how do we do that? You say what he says. See, some people get tripped up by the idea that, well, if I say that I'm healed when I know that I'm not, when the doctor still says I have cancer or whatever the case is, if I say I'm healed when the doctor says I have cancer, I'm lying. And that's where the devil will try to trip people up. And he wants them to be real honest. The only time in, the, in your lifetime that the devil will want you to be honest. But he wants you to be real honest when it comes to your circumstances. He wants you to not say that you're healed until you can see in your body that the healing is there. Now he'll tempt you to lie about everything else in life. But he wants to make sure that you're really, really honest about that. So what do we do? How do we overcome that? Well, here's the thing that helped me when I first started getting started, first got started in believing God, and I heard Brother Hagin say this. He said, in order to combat the enemy, say, according to the word of God, I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Now, what you're doing is you're quoting what God said. And that takes away all the the the, uh, the torment or all the the work of the devil against you to claim that you're lying because all you're doing is saying what God said. If there's a lie involved, it's God's. But God's not a man that he should lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So if you want an easy and quick way to defeat the enemy when it comes to this idea of am I telling the truth or not, say according to the word of God, I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Because that's what the word says, isn't it? And then let the devil take it up with God, which he won't. So Abraham stood before God and believed what God said, knowing or understanding 
what we should understand, that God calls things that be not in a natural or material realm as though they were already in place in reality. God calls things to be reality before we can see them appear. It's the way he created the earth. He didn't wait till he saw light and said, wow, this, this sure is bright. He said, light be. He said that in the midst of darkness. In the same way, he said, healing be through the sacrifice of Jesus. Long before you ever found out whatever you're diagnosed with. So God calls things that be not as though they were. Who against hope, Abraham had no natural circumstance to hope in, in other words. Who against hope believed in hope. Well, where did he get his hope from? It tells you in the last part of the verse, according to that which was spoken. He put his hope in something he couldn't see, but rather what he heard from God. He didn't put his hope in natural circumstances. He didn't have any natural circumstance to hope in. One of the greatest places for great faith to be developed is in impossible circumstances. Because faith's the only thing that'll work then. Who against hope believed in hope to the result that he might become the father of many nations. Now, what did he put his hope in? According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, notice that's a choice. Abraham made a choice. He made a determination to not be weak in faith. Same choice, same determination we have to make. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Well, not being weak in faith is being strong in faith, isn't it? So here's what strong faith does. It considers not the circumstances of the body. Now, it doesn't deny the circumstances of the body. Abraham didn't go around saying, I'm not 100 years old. I'm not 100 years old. I'm not 100 years old. And that's what a lot of people seem to do. They think that if they deny the circumstances, somehow or another, that's faith. And it's not. God calls things that be not as though they were. He doesn't deny things that are. He overcomes the realities, the physical and material realities, with the truth of the power of his word. So Abraham's determination to be strong in faith was, number one, not to consider the circumstances of his body as the final word on the subject. He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't deny the fact that his body and her body were not functioning in a reproductive manner in the way that it did 30 years earlier. He's simply choosing to be strong in faith according to what God had promised. So in order to be strong in faith according to the promise of God, he's got to, to not consider. In other words, the word consider means to look intently at. He did not look intently at his circumstances. He didn't deny them, but he didn't use them as the final authority in his, in his situation. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. But, and I'm going to switch over to from the King James to the American Standard Version for the next verse. It's really good. Yet, verse 20, yet looking under the promise of God. If he's not looking at his body, what is he looking at? Strong faith doesn't look at the circumstance. Well, what does strong faith look at then? Yet looking at the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong in faith, giving glory to God. Did you get it? Strong faith doesn't look at the circumstances. Strong faith looks at the promise of God instead. And folks, that's a determination. And notice what it says, being strong in faith, being strong in faith is looking under the promise of God and giving glory to God in the meantime. Do you remember when the Syrophoenician woman worshipped Jesus? When Jesus said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's she worshipping him for? It's a sign of her faith. It's a sign of her submittal to Jesus as, a, as her answer. Does she know how the answer is going to come? She doesn't have a clue. At that point, she didn't even have an assurance 
that the answer would be given. Well, what did she know? What did she believe? What is she acting on? She's acting on Jesus being the sent one, the Messiah. She calls him that. Have mercy on me, thou son of David. O Lord, thou son of David. What does Jesus know from what she said? He knows that she believes he's the Messiah. She was right. So what does she do? She worships him. Now, who is Jesus the Messiah for? Just the Jews? No, he's the Messiah for the world. He was sent to the Jews first. Now, this part, we don't know if she knew or not. But she's tapped into something that may be even beyond her knowledge. When she worships Jesus, she's saying, even though you say you're sent to the Jews, I know you're my answer. Same thing as Abraham giving glory to God before he saw the results. Here's the next characteristic he mentions in verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And being fully persuaded that what he promised, he was able also to perform. Now, here's the real reason I wanted to teach on this tonight. And I see what time it is. I want to cover this real quickly. But strong faith, here's a characteristic or here's a, a hidden element, a hidden truth about great faith or strong faith. And that is, it's not developed overnight. The centurion didn't, didn't operate off the spur of the moment or the top of his head Get an idea and say, hey, I know what let's do. Let's see if this Jesus guy we've heard about can help. No. If that were the case, he might have taken Jesus up on the offer to come to his house and heal his servant. But you can see that there's a greater principle at work here with the centurion. Because when Jesus offers to come to his house, he said, not so, Lord. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Why? Because I understand how authority works. Now, folks, what I want you to understand is he's thought this thing out. This is not him just responding to Jesus off the cuff. He's thought this out. I don't need you to come to my house. I never wanted you to come to my house. Because I understand that you have authority over sickness. So all I need you to do is say the word. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Because he has determined ahead of time. And this is what great faith does. Great faith thinks this stuff through. Great faith is prepared and armed for battle. Great faith doesn't just wait and see what the devil does and then figure out how we're going to respond. Great faith thinks through the circumstances and the possibilities. Because when Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal him, he says, I don't need you to do that. I'm a man under authority. My experience developed over time with servants and soldiers where I tell them to do one thing and they do it. I tell them to come to me and they come. This experience that's been developed over a period of time, we don't know how long, but some period of time, maybe years. This experience that I have for people obeying my word because of my position in relation to them. I understand that it's my words that determines what outcome will, will take place. I understand in the same way that I have authority over the soldiers under me and the servants in my household. Jesus, you have that same authority, that same relationship with sickness and disease. You have authority over them. When you say to go... Sickness and disease has to go. Just like when I tell one of my soldiers to go, they have to go. When I tell one of my servants to go, they have to go. They have to obey me because of my position of authority. I recognize Jesus and we don't even have to understand or we don't even know if he understands why Jesus has this authority. He just knows that he does. We don't see any record of or indication that he says... Well, I know you're the Messiah. Come to save the world. We don't know who he thinks Jesus is. But the one thing that we do know is that he knows Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. So all he has to do, based on the centurion's understanding of authority, developed over time, is to say the word. 
Same thing's true where the Syrophoenician woman is concerned. She comes to Jesus knowing full well that Jesus doesn't do signs and wonders and miracles in Tyre and Sidon. She knows that. She doesn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to take you to my city so you can hold a campaign. We want you to have a crusade. You can stay all week long if you want to. No. What she knows about Jesus, she is determined based on what she's heard, based on the reports, she's determined that Jesus is the Messiah. And she knows enough to know that Jesus is the Messiah for the world and not just for the Jews. If that had not been the case, she wouldn't have come out of Tyre and Sidon to find him in her coast. She would have gone to Jerusalem and waited for him there. If it's a geographic thing, she made a mistake going where she went. But she knows it's not. She knows enough about the Jewish prophecies concerning Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah to know that God has promised mercy to mankind. So what does she do? She comes looking for mercy. Jesus doesn't answer her. And she won't give up. Now most people that I'm aware of, most people would have taken the hesitation for Jesus to speak as a sign that, well, maybe this is not the will of God after all. All these things that I imagined would happen, that was just in my head, I guess. They would have given up immediately. But she would not. She would not give up. Wouldn't give up. Now, what she believes, she believes strongly enough, whether she's planned this out and whether she saw the future, so to speak, or not, I I can't attest to. I can't imagine that she would have said, all right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jesus and ask him for help, and he's not going to answer me, so I'm going to have to be strong. How do you prepare for that? You wouldn't have imagined that to be the case. But she believes Jesus is the answer, her answer, enough that irrespective of the fact that he did not answer her right away, she's not going to be denied no matter what. She's not going home without her answer. She just refuses. Now, some people would say that's arrogance. Some people would say, well, the very audacity for somebody in your position to dictate to God how it's going to be. She is. And Jesus said it's great faith. Jesus commends her for it. She's not going home without her answer. Now the church, modern day church will say, oh, that's arrogance. The very idea for you trying to dictate to God how things are going to be. When you're dictating to God based on what he's revealed in his word, you're on good ground. So Jesus answers and said, I'm not sent but to to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she worships him. She not only won't give up, she implores him again. She says, Lord, help me. And then he says, it's not right. And he's talking about the point in time he was sent to the Jews first. And after the Jews rejected him, then he went to the Gentiles. So basically he's saying, it's not my time to minister to the Gentiles yet. It's not right to take the children's bread, healing and deliverance. And cast it to the Gentile nation. And then she says she turns his words to her benefit. Based on who she believes Jesus to be. Which is the Messiah. She says truth Lord. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus says wow. Woman great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. Again Jesus never says your daughter is healed. He simply says. According as you have believed, so be it done. How did she develop that kind of perseverance? How did she develop that unwillingness to turn loose before she gets the answer? She's prepared herself. She's meditated on who Jesus is. She's become convinced within herself that no man can do the miracles that Jesus is doing. Even the Jews knew that. That's what Nicodemus said to Jesus in John chapter 3. Master, we know God is with you. You've got to be sent from God because nobody can do the miracles you're doing except God be with them. Well, then why didn't they believe? She knew the same thing that the Jews knew, the Pharisees knew, and she turned it to her own advantage to get what Jesus was sent to deliver. 
which was healing. Abraham's the third example. Abraham became fully persuaded. Now, we know how long it took Abraham to be fully persuaded. We know that when he was 75 years old, God first appeared to him and said he'd give him children. We know that he appeared to him several times in the meantime or over the years. And then when he was 99 years old, God appeared to him and says, you'll have a son this time next year. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Not rejoiced, laughed. Abraham developed great faith in a one-year period of time. By the time Isaac is born, Abraham is strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Now, nine months of that one year is Sarah carrying the child. So perhaps we could say he developed the faith for an impossible birth in three months and stood in faith for the term, the full term of the baby being carried. So when I say faith is, strong faith is developed over time, it doesn't mean necessarily years. I think the time has to do with you and me more than it does anything else. It has to do with our determination, the strength of our determination. But Abraham became fully persuaded. Now this, and here's the point that I'm trying to make about this. You know how the Bible says the trying of your faith is more precious than gold? Anybody like for their faith to be tried? Anybody enjoy that? I never have. I don't like it any better now than I used to when I first got started. I want instant results. Don't you? And somehow or another, we've got the idea that great faith gets instant results. You can't find that supported by Scripture. In fact, some of the great faith, some of the greatest or strongest faith is developed over time. Because remember, it's faith and patience that inherits the promise. You can't develop patience by getting instant results. Instant results and patience do not work together. Now, there are times where we get instant results. There are times where healing miracles take place. But very rarely are those in response to our faith. Usually that's God-initiated. So great faith has to have time to develop in strength. It has to. That's why James talks about counting on all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect in entire wanting or lacking nothing. In other words, patience developed with your faith will make your faith great and bring about the results. F.F. Bosworth made a, a, a statement. Uh, I first heard it from Brother Hagen, and then I read it in Christ the Healer, his book Christ the Healer many years later. But he said this. He said, sometimes instant results are the greatest curse that there is in the area of healing. And that really surprised me when I heard Brother Hagen say that he said that. I wasn't as familiar with him then as I am now, talking about F.F. Bosworth. But I assumed everybody wanted instant results like I did. Because he said this. He said, instant healings are sometimes the greatest curse in the area of healing because the devil will always counterattack. And if you have not developed your faith over time and stood in the face of contradicting circumstance, then most often those people will fall to the counterattack. And he made this statement, and it certainly bears truth. He said, more healings are lost to counterattacks than any other thing. Well, if you get your faith by standing on the word of God over a period of time, there's no counterattack that can take it from you. Because you've over a period of time, whatever that time period is, can be long, can be short, there's no rule of thumb for it, but whatever that period of time is that you've had to Consider not your circumstance, but look unto the promise of God and be strong in faith. You have developed yourself to be fully persuaded that the word of God is more true 
and more real than the circumstances that appear. When you get to that position, when you get to that place, no matter what area it is, whether it's finances, whether it's healing, whether it's anything else, no matter what the area is, when you develop that kind of confidence in God's word, the devil can't ever take it from you. Ever. There's a man named uh, Phil Halverson that we became acquainted with when we were working with Brother Hagen. And he was a man that Brother Hagen had, he and his wife, Fern, uh, were a couple that Brother Hagen had a great deal of confidence in when it came to prayer. Well, that grabbed our attention, and so we were uh, in a position to, to see them on occasion. They still lived in Minnesota at the time that we first met them. But within a, a year or so, they moved to Tulsa. And um, after they moved to Tulsa, that's where we were living at the time, when they moved to Tulsa um, over, I don't know, a period of, well, it was a pretty short time, over a period of a couple of months, I guess, we became aware they told us that the God had told them that there were two couples that they were supposed to pray with. And Beth and I were one of them. Well, we were floored. I mean, it was like, you got to be kidding. God even knows us. This is great. And so there were, there were a couple of times that we met together, and it didn't, didn't turn out to be as often or as frequent as what I would have liked for it to be. Because we were traveling at the time. We'd already left Brother Hagin's ministry, and we were on our own, and so was the other couple. And so they're, they're, they wanted us all to pray together. And so we met with them a couple of times whenever we could, whenever the, everybody's schedules worked out. And, uh, and there was something that he said to me. He told me a little bit about their situation, how God started uh, called him to prayer. And he was an older fellow. This was back in the 80s, and he was an old guy then. He talked about during the Depression and, and some of the, the uh, lean years and when they first got married and, and that kind of thing. He said that he was working in an auto mechanic shop. And um, he said there would be times where the spirit of prayer would come on him during the middle of the day when he was working on a car. And he said, I'd have to stop working. Now, this was not his shop. He's working for somebody else. He said, but the spirit of prayer would be so great upon me. He said, I'd have to get off by myself and pray. And he said, I started talking to the Lord about it. And he said, you know, God always covered him. He didn't get in trouble with his boss or anything. But he he knew he was robbing from his boss. Because he's getting paid during time that he's praying. So he said, I started talking to the Lord about it. He said, Lord, this is not right. This is not honest. I'm I'm not being a good worker for my boss. And you want us to be that. You want us to be honest and, and do everything in, in an honest and upright manner. What am I supposed to do with this? And the Lord challenged him. The Lord said, can you believe me to supply your needs so that you go to prayer full time? Now, folks, people would hear this story and say, well, that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to pray full time. And what they mean is stay home and watch soap operas. I'm not recommending this for anybody. And if it, had not, if it had not borne out in his life over decades, I wouldn't even be telling you the story. But he said this. He said, the Lord really challenged him. He said, I had to pray about it. He said, I, uh, it took me several months before I could get to the place where I was willing to step out and trust God just to meet my needs by praying. He said, I, I knew I was going to have to take it serious. I was going to have to treat it as a full-time job. I was going to have to give God my best just like I wanted to give the guy I was working for in the auto shop. But he said over a period of months, he said, I I read the word. He said, I I put the word into myself and I prayed about it and meditated on it. He said, I finally came to the place where I said, okay, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. He said, I never had so much trouble, financial trouble in my life in that first year. He said, everything went wrong. He said, we had no income. He said, we were newly married. And he said, here, I'm not able to take care of my wife. I'm telling her she, she wasn't at the same place. God hadn't spoken to her in the same way that he had him. So she's operating on trust in him that he's doing the right thing. And boy, it's not working. And it's not working in, in a big way. He said, but about nine or ten months into that first year, he said, something happened. He said, it's hard for me to describe. He said, but something happened. I got to the place where I just refused to have anything less than what the Bible says is ours. 
He said, I gained a victory in that day. And he said, I've never had trouble with finances since. And then he told me this, and this is the real point that I was trying to get across to you. He said, it seems that when you defeat the enemy in an area, you come to the place where you become fully persuaded. This is the term he used. You come to the place where you become fully persuaded that God's word is true. The devil can't ever bring problems to you in that area like that ever again. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have to keep learning the same lessons of healing over and over and over again. You wouldn't have to learn the same lessons of prosperity or finances or provision over and over again, would you? The Bible says add to experience to your faith. In other words, you gain an experience of victory over the enemy. And that's a battle you won't have to fight again. Doesn't mean the devil won't throw circumstances at you. Doesn't mean he won't try to rise up and create problems. But not in the same way and in the, in the, at the same level as what you were. That's the way great faith works. Great faith may have to redevelop itself from area to area. But once you become fully persuaded that God's word is true. You've gained an advantage in ground on the devil that you'll never have to give up. Making any sense? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be strong in faith, looking under the promise of God and not to the circumstance. Father, we thank you that Jesus took stripes upon his back and that with his stripes we were healed. We don't declare that we will be healed someday. We declare that we are healed because Jesus' sacrifice has already been made. According to the word of God, we are healed. Thank you for the privilege, Father, to stand in faith. Thank you for the privilege to count it all joy in divers temptations and attacks of the enemy. It's such a privilege, Father, to give you glory before we see the answer. We count the trying of our faith more precious than gold. But we refuse to give up because we've got the written word of God the word of God given to us that can never change, the eternal word of God. Thank you, Father, that we are healed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.